Welcome to the Grace Life Fellowship Podcast. This past Sunday here at Grace Life, Pastor Frank wrapped up his series, Live Free, A Study of Galatians, and we're excited to share his final message with you here today. It's titled, The Freedom to Live a Beautiful Life. Before listening, if you haven't already done so and you'd like to listen to the entire series on Galatians, I suggest you go back to episode two now. Okay, here's Pastor Frank. Let's open our Bibles for the first and last time to Galatians chapter 6. I want to begin this morning by sharing something very personal with you. So I would really appreciate your confidentiality as a family to keep this between us. I used to be indecisive, but now I'm not so sure. If you've been with us in our study of Galatians, you know that the Apostle Paul has been anything but indecisive. He's been strong, he's been precise, he's been unwavering, because he had to be. The Galatian believers, which are really his spiritual kids, are being deceived by some slick-talking legalists, religionists, who came on the scene in Galatia adding to the gospel the requirement of the law, specifically circumcision, for both entering into salvation and experiencing sanctification. We need to own the seriousness of what they're doing. They are not out and out enemies readily recognizable. They continue to name the name of Jesus as their savior. Like Paul warned in Acts 20, these perverse men are going to rise up from within the church. And that's what makes them so dangerous. Theirs is a message of Jesus, but it's a message of Jesus plus. It's a gospel, Paul said back in chapter 1, that is not a gospel. One writer nailed this. He says, anytime you supplement Jesus, you supplant Jesus. In desperation, that's the word I would use. Like a fierce soldier, Paul went to war on behalf of his kids. He heralded loudly that these legalists were perverting the gospel. I trust you remember that from chapter one. Very important word for us, huge word. It literally means reversed. If you add one law to the gospel. You have changed direction 180 degrees away from Jesus. Instead of traveling down the road of divine accomplishment, trusting what God has done, they're choosing to travel down the road of human achievement and trust what they are going to do. Instead of receiving grace, They're achieving through the law. Instead of resting in faith, they're laboring in works. Instead of the way of the spirit, they are choosing the way of the flesh. And the Galatians, Paul's kids, are beginning to follow him. And so in great frustration, to change metaphors, it was as if Paul took them to court. He went on the offensive in chapters 1 through 3 like an aggressive prosecutor. He presented rapid fire arguments and backed the Galatian Christians into a corner they could not get out of. 
And then in chapter 4 and 5, with great affection, Paul became like a heartbroken parent. Literally begging his kids to return to the way of life. The way of the spirit in a walk of faith. As I meditated on this book that we've been privileged to study these last several weeks, you know, he's done just about all he can. You know, you reach a point where there there really isn't much left to say. And so as he winds down his letter, my friends, he picks up in intensity once again. Like a soldier on his final offensive, like a prosecutor putting forth his summation, like a parent giving one last appeal as their child heads out on a Friday night. He puts forth a flurry of thought in one last attempt to bring them back to the way of grace, the way of Jesus, the way of the cross. As I shared with a few people this week as I was laboring in this passage, it's almost like he's a boxer in the 15th round and he's going for the knockout. Father, I pray that we would see what the Apostle Paul so desperately wants us to see. I pray that we would be ever settled in the way of grace and never, ever look again to the way of of law. I pray that we would be finding so much life in the spirit that we would never look to the way of license, that we would have eyes only for you. Father, accomplish that permanently in all our lives as we walk through this and experience that knockout blow. We trust you for that in Jesus' name. You know, as I meditated on this book, I think the key word for me is contrast. I think if you've been with us in this study, you would agree that is a very good choice of words. Throughout the book, he sought to put to our minds and to our hearts that there are two contrasting ways to God. Both marked the way to God, but only one arrives at its destination. And that's the road of faith, not works. It's the way of grace, not law. It's the way of the spirit and not the way of the flesh. And so to help us choose that right road, the way of faith, the way of the spirit, what Paul's going to do here in this last chapter is, again, present a series of contrasts, this time focusing not so much on the doctrine, but on the differing lives those two opposing doctrines produce. Look at the life and make the choice. Which life do you want to live? Which life do you want to give to other people? He's very pointed here in defining the way of the flesh. He's not going to use a lot of words because he doesn't have to. If you were here last week, you remember from chapter 5, verse 19, he said the way of the flesh is very evident. You don't need a microscope to observe it. It's very plain to see. And it's just plain ugly 
In verse 25 of chapter 5, he said, if we live by the Spirit, if we have found life in him, let us walk in the Spirit. Verse 26, let us not walk. Let us not become like those who walk after the flesh. Let us not become legalists. Let us not become religiousness. Let us not become consumed with the law. Let us not be consumed with our own good works. And he uses three key words. Let us not become boastful. Look what I do. Oh, look what I would never do. Provoking. Uh, Why don't we compare what I do with what you do? And envying. You see, we don't like it when other people do it better than us. And so we've got to destroy them. Get rid of them. And there you have it. What I would call the unholy trinity of religious, legalistic attitude and behavior. If you've been with us for any length of time at Grace Life Fellowship, you've heard me say this before. Religious people are the meanest people in the world because they have to be. They live in a spirit of competition where there are winners and losers, and they are for damn sure not going to be losers. They will win at other people's expense. They will judge others, never themselves, of course. They will expose other people's struggles. They'll never expose their own. You know, the word that popped into my brain this week was, they are spiritual bullies. And I hate bullies. You know, it's Luke 18. Remember the story Jesus told about the Pharisee and he's got his religious good works. And he says, I fast and I tithe and and I pray. Do you hear the boast? I thank you that I'm not like other people. The arrogance And he spells it out. You know, know, people, they're swindlers and unjust and adulterers. And then he gets so pointed, even like this tax collector here. The challenge, the comparison. Oh, there's no envy. That's missing. Because in his own eyes, he's better than everybody else. Nobody for him to envy. Contrast that with the sinner. He got nothing to offer. He knows his own life. There's no boast, there's no comparison. There's only a cry. Is there anyone out there that will love me in spite of what I do? Is there anyone out there that will, will fight for me no matter who I am? God, be merciful to me, please. I fail. I'm a sinner. And I love Jesus' words. That man's the one that went home justified. And I think we nicety it. We don't let it proclaim what it really says. The word is righteous. Jesus says, that's the man who went home righteous. The one who had done all the crap. That man is righteous because he trusts me. The other man, oh, he prayed with himself. 
I love that. That's, that's confirmation that his is a religion of man. How about the woman caught in adultery in John 8? Proverbs 79 says, whoever conceals a matter promotes love. 1 Peter 4, 8 says, love one another deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Not the legalist, not the religionist. You remember what they did? They brought her to the public square and exposed before everyone what she had done. They couldn't have done a better job than putting her in the evening news. You know, like we do today. It's so mean. It's so ugly. You know, I'm, I meditated on this contrast. The verse that came to my mind is from 2 Samuel 24 when David sinned. Do you remember what he said? Let me fall into the hands of the living God. Do you realize that, that cry? He is completely and utterly holy. He holds death in his hands. Let me fall into his hands. Because there, there is mercy. Don't let me fall into the hands of people. Especially religious people. Implication's pretty clear. People don't extend mercy. Especially religious ones. Paul says, don't be like that. Let's not be arrogant and competitive and envious because we're not religious people. We're not competing under the law. We have all entered into a relationship with God on the same level playing field of grace and that's our only boast. We're the people who walk by faith in the spirit, trusting him to produce his life in and through us and the life he produces is a life of love. So look at Galatians 6.1, my friends, and let's own the contrast between how legalists treat people who fail and how spiritual people treat people who fail. Look at how he begins. Don't miss any of this. The Holy Spirit chose the word so carefully. How does he start? Brethren, Family, not competitors, family. If anyone, oh, don't miss that word either. Any one of us is a breath away from failing. And how does Paul describe what happens when we fail? Look what he says. He says we're caught in a trespass. We're, the, the word literally means trap, overtaken. Do you remember Genesis 4, 7? God said sin is crouching at the door waiting to devour us like a wild animal. That's what happens when we sin. Do you remember Romans 7? Paul says, when I sin, I'm doing the thing I hate. The real me, the new creation me, the, the born again me. We don't want to sin. We, don't want, we want to do what's right. But sometimes we get caught in a trap. You know the nature of a trap? Sometimes we can't get out. We need help. We get caught and deceived and seduced and with an actor of our will, we choose to act contrary to who we are. And spiritual people, look what he says in verse one. We know that. 
Not religious people, spiritual people. Who are the spiritual people? Chapter five. There there are those who walk by faith in the spirit. There are those who walk in love. And so what do people do? What do spiritual people do when we come across somebody who has failed in sin? Well, if you have any church experience at all, you know the answer to that. We shame them and guilt them and mock them and publicly expose them. Is it any wonder numbers are declining in the church in America? Who wants that? Paul says, that's not what we do. We restore them. You might want to circle that word. It means to mend, to set a broken bone. And don't miss the qualifier at the end of the verse. It's not just what we do, it's how we do it. We do so with meekness and gentleness. We restore people just like Jesus did. Remember Matthew 11? Come to me, all you who are weak and weary and heavy laden, and I will what? Okay, and you know how many people miss the rest of the verse? Oh, I understand missing the rest of the verse because we're very excited about entering into rest when we've been working so hard and sweating and never arriving at our destination. Man, I love rest. But we miss the character behind the one who gives the rest. He says, I will give you rest, finish the verse, because I am humble and gentle in spirit. Why is this issue of gentleness so important? Because these people are already broken. They're burdened with guilt and shame and sorrow, and they wonder if God will ever use them again. And if we're not gentle with them, we could add to their brokenness. Isaiah 42 is one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible. God says, I will never cast off the bruised reed. You got to go into the ancient world and they had their, their, their water and around the water they'd have the reeds and they'd get a reed and they'd carve it and make a flute, but they're very tender. And when you're making it, you might break it or bruise it. It's not good anymore. What do you do? You throw it away and get another reed. There's lots of them. God says, I will never do that. Messed up. Have you bruised yourself? I'll never discard you. He says, I will never extinguish a dimly burning wick. In the ancient world, they would put a wick in oil, and that's how they got their light. And when the wick begins to burn down, it doesn't give off very much light. No problem. Throw it away. Get another one. God says, I'll never do that with you. They need to know that character of God, my friends, and how are they going to know it if we don't demonstrate it to them? If we don't come to them gently and help them out of the pit that they've gotten themselves into. By sitting down with them until they're able to walk again, 2 Corinthians 2, 7, we are able to comfort them lest they be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. We affirm to them that there's no sin so hideous that God cannot restore them and use them to experience and express his life again. We affirm to them that they've not been disqualified, that their lives will play beautiful music again and that they will shine brightly in the darkness of this world. In Hebrews, you know what Jesus said? He said he's not ashamed to call us brethren. Well, if he's not ashamed to call any of us brethren, then we shouldn't be ashamed either. 
You know what? As I meditated on that, I had this thought. I think that's one of the reasons legalists are so mean to those who fall. They're ashamed that one of their own has made them look bad. So they've got to get rid of them. Well, they're not one of us. We don't do things like that. No, the truth is they're just so good at doing them, they don't get caught. They're more concerned about how they look than helping somebody who's in need. And that's not just when it comes to sin, my friends. It's true with any hardship in life. You remember the story of the Good Samaritan? Man got beaten and robbed and left on the side of the road. What did the religious people do? They passed by on the other side. Remember what Jesus said about them in Matthew 23? He says, they put burdens on men and don't lift a finger to help them. They don't only help people with burden, they burden them even worse. Welcome to religion. And again, note the contrast between the way they do it and the way we do it. Galatians 6.2. Spirit-filled people bear one another's burdens. The attitude of spirit-filled people is your burden is my burden. They have an eye to help because they're motivated by love. You're carrying 100 pounds, let me help you. We'll each carry 50. Ours is a life that's not self-oriented. Philippians 2, we have the fellowship of the spirit. We not only look on our own interests, but the interests of others. And so look then what Paul says in verses 3 through 5. This is huge. You, you don't, dare not miss this. Read it with me on your own Bible. If anyone thinks he's something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Each one's got to examine his own work and then he'll have a reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to somebody else for each one bears his own load. You say, what in the world is that all about? Seems so out of place, but it's not. Fits the context perfectly. You got to go back to chapter five, verse 25, where we started this morning. The law keeper is boastful, competitive, comparing, and envying. So what's the danger? The danger is that anytime any one of us sets our eyes on someone who has sinned and needs to be restored or sets our eyes on someone who's bearing a burden, it's very easy for us to function like the legalist and begin to think to ourselves who are not struggling and fall into the trap of thinking, boy, we must really be something spiritual. And what Paul is doing here, my friends, he's pointing out another major contrast between the legalist and those who trust the Spirit. The legalist compares himself to others and exalts himself. The one who trusts the Spirit recognizes that apart from the Spirit, he's nothing. We need to put our minds on 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul asked there, what do we have that we didn't receive? What's the answer to that? Nothing. Well, if we've received it, then why do we boast this if we didn't receive it? Each individual person bears that burden, bears that responsibility of examining his own work and coming to the realization that the life he is experiencing is a gift from the Holy Spirit. That's what that passage is saying. And therefore, the basis for comparing himself with others in order to boast in himself cannot be a part of our lives. I love one writer. He nailed this. Conceit, listen to this. Conceit can coexist with outward morality, but it cannot exist with true spirituality. We know where the source of that goodness came from, and it wasn't us. 
Now, I need you to pay very close attention here to verses 6 through 10. A lot of people miss this. I labored for hours in this section this week because I couldn't get a piece about it. Look at verses 6 through 10. Let him that is taught in the word share with him that teaches in all good things. Don't be deceived. God's not mocked. Whatever you sow, that will you reap. You sow to the flesh, you'll reap of the flesh corruption. You sow to the spirit, you'll reap of the spirit life everlasting. Don't grow weary in doing good for in due season. If we faint not, we shall reap. Now, I read a lot of really good people out there who think that Paul is talking here about financially supporting the ones who teach you spiritual things. Now, that is a biblical injunction. It's taught in various passages in the New Testament, in both the Old Testament as well. Those who receive spiritual treasure from a pastor should provide material treasure to the pastor. It's a good principle. I like it a lot. I especially like the one where it says, if he does a good job, pay him double. That I really like. I like it because it's wisdom. It's wisdom. Most people do not have the time, the energy, the training, and the giftedness to dig deep into Father's word and mind the spiritual treasure that's in there. Make sense? So the church is to set a man aside, pay him to do the work, and then he shares with those precious jewels with the entire body. That's Ephesians chapter 4, and the body grows up in Christ. What's the problem? The issue of finance is completely foreign to this context. Further, we know from this book and others in the New Testament that these legalists were using the saints, manipulating the saints for their own benefit, glory, and profit. Paul has spoken against them for five chapters. He's spoken against their doctrine. He's spoken against their methods. And for him to now say, oh, by the way, you need to pay those who teach you, hint, hint. You see the problem? That could undermine everything his heart has been trying to accomplish for those people. You don't bring money into this context, gang. You just don't do it. Not in this book. What I see him doing is continuing to drive his point home that life is found only in the spirit. Stay with me. In verse six, he is not talking about paying the teacher. He is saying, and I'm gonna give you Frank's amplified translation. We'll put it up on the overhead. The one who is being taught is to share with the teacher, i.e. participate in what the teacher has. The teacher is trying to bring him all good things. So receive those good things. Believe me, Paul says, when I'm telling you. Verse 7, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. Context by those other teachers, the legalists. God's not going to be mocked by anyone. I don't care how many initials they have after their name and how many books they've written. God's not, you know what that word mock literally means? He's not going to lift anybody, lift their nose at him like some arrogant little brat. Which is exactly what a religious person is. I'm going to do it my way, God, not your way. God's not mocked. God says, oh, no, you're not. It doesn't work that way, son. 
If you haven't got it by now, let me make it very clear. Look at carefully at the language of verse 7. God has established a universal law. Cannot be violated by any man, any woman, believer or unbeliever. The law is whatever you sow, you're going to reap. You can't sow one thing and expect another. You can't sow corn and expect wheat. You're going to get corn. So look at the language of verse 7 as he applies it. If you sow to your flesh, if you Galatians follow the path of those legalists, and if you sow to the law and, and sow to good works, God's not going to be mocked, gang. You will reap death. You will reap destruction. You will reap decay. I have made it so clear in my New Testament. The works of the law will not justify you. The law kills. The law is a ministry of death and condemnation. And if you sow that road, that road does not lead to life. You see why he's not talking about money? But, and I'll tell you, these last few weeks, we've seen some really big buts. But, contrast. Look at the language. If you sow to the Spirit, you will reap from the Spirit eternal life. The life that is God's life will be experienced in you and expressed through you as you trust him by faith. And then verses 9 and 10, he wraps it up in a package like a Christmas gift to blow our minds. This has stunned me all week. Verses 9 and 10. Look what he says. Do not lose heart in doing good. Please don't hear me be arrogant. But I do want you to hear me being strong. That's an okay translation. It's not the best one. The word good is the word kalos. And I challenge you to go home and look it up in your own concordance. Look it up online in a Greek interlinear. Kalos means beautiful in its primary root meaning. It really needs to be translated beautiful doings. Well, Frank, why are you making such an issue of that? Because life isn't about doing good works. I want you to think with me. Whose life is being expressed through us? Life of the Holy Spirit through Christ. In Psalm 24, it says, there's one thing I want, to see the beauty of God. So why would we settle for doing good works when we can manifest by faith his own beautiful life to people? When we have the opportunity to express that beautiful life to others so that they can look at our own lives and, and, then, and not say, oh, what a good guy he is, but oh my gosh, the beauty of God, I see it. And that's why we do it especially to the household of faith so that this beauty and beauty and beauty in the unbelieving world looks at us and wants to get in on it. 
And then we can introduce them to how easy it is. Trust Jesus. And he says, then, so don't grow weary in doing this. Do we grow weary? Of course we do. We get tired. People let us down. We let ourselves down. We don't see fruit. We pour our lives into people and we don't see them respond. You got family members like that? So yeah, we grow weary. And he said, don't do that because the harvest is coming. And the thought that hits me is this. When that harvest comes, I think we're going to wonder why we ever grew weary in the first place because the harvest is so incredible. And I think we'll say to ourselves, you know what? I could have waited thousands of years for that to come because the wait is worth it. So we come to the conclusion, verses 11 through 18. The teenager's heading out the door, gang. It's the last chance for parental warning. How many of you had that happen? Leslie, Ben, remember, 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 remember. And what are they doing? They're going out there. I got you, Dad. I got you, Dad. I got you, Dad. The analogy I would use for this last seven, eight verses is this is the 15th round of a heavyweight boxing match. And you know, the first 14 rounds in the boxing ring, you pace yourself because you got a long way to go. But in the 15th round, baby, you let fly with everything you've got. That's exactly what Paul does. Let's look at it. Verse 11, a left jab. I am writing to you. That's significant. Paul normally dictated to a scribe. And it appears in this context from what he says, he wrote this whole letter. The matter is too urgent, too important. There have been too many voices speaking into the Galatian people. And he says, it's time for only one voice. She said, look at the large handwriting I have. That's Paul's certificate of authenticity. Maybe because of the eye disease we talked about a few chapters ago. Maybe because of a damaged hand from being stoned at Lystra. Here comes a right hook. Verse 12. The legalists who are trying to make you follow the law and get circumcised, they're only doing that so they don't get persecuted by the Jews. Oh, we believe in Jesus, but, but we still follow the law. The cross is offensive to religious people. Religious people get mad when you tell them everything they've done counts nothing. So the Jews are trying to walk both roads, those legalists, those religionists. And Paul says, you know what they are? They're cowards. Now, a left hook. Verse 13, those legalists, they don't even keep their own law. They only want you to follow their law so they can boast in you as their converts. Look at how big our church is. Look how many followers we have. It's really a boast in themselves. We're so good. You know, we're so better than everybody else. Verse 14, another jab. Paul says, I boast only in the cross. It's the only thing I can boast in. In the cross, the world was crucified to me. The, the world no longer matters to me. Philippians 3, all that I did, all that hard work I did, I recognize that it's nothing but done. We're Christians we, so we don't say crap. 
I counted it done for the sake of being able to lay hold of Jesus. And then he adds, in the cross, I was crucified to the world. What does that mean? It means I no longer matter to the world. The world doesn't care about me anymore. The world doesn't even know I exist. And that's okay. In fact, it's more than okay. Look at the uppercut that comes in verse 15. It's not about what we do or don't do. It's not about circumcision or uncircumcision, whether we work or don't work. That's not the issue. The issue is the work of God in making me a brand new creation. Verse 16, here comes the roundhouse. Peace and mercy to those who walk in this rule, this universal law, even, don't translate and, if it's and, cross it out and put even, it means both things, even the Israel of God. What's he saying? This is not a reference to the Jews, gang. It's not. It's a reference to us who went from following the flesh to following the spirit. Don't you remember in the book of Genesis, we had Jacob who's walking in flesh, but when he walks in the spirit, he becomes Israel. That's us. We follow the rule, the way of life, that there's only one way to God, the way of faith, not the law. We made a choice to be a receiver from God instead of an achiever for ourselves. He continues in verse 17. You know, those legalists, they want to boast about the little scar from circumcision. I have more and larger and better scars, says Paul. I bear in my body the scars of Jesus. All you got to do is go to 2 Corinthians 11. The beatings, the whippings, the rods, the stones that tore his flesh and broke his bones. Paul says, I'm proven that I'm the real deal, baby. I've laid my life down for Jesus. I'm not about protecting myself from persecution. I'm going to tell it like it is, even if you don't like it. Some people see in the word scar the idea of branding. If that's true, then Paul is saying, I'm the love slave of Jesus. Remember in the Old Testament, I willingly bear the scar. I willingly become your slave. The 15th round is just seconds away from being over. Hang in there. And here comes the knockout punch. Verse 18. It's over. It's over. What does he say? The grace of our Lord Jesus be with your spirit, brethren, amen. The what be with them? Grace. This is good news, sweetie, not bad news. I want to leave you, my friends, with one last biblical observation, and it's huge. I challenge you to go home and look at the salutations of Paul's other letters. They're long. They're long. They're very warm. They're full of greetings. Hey, all, this one's, all these ones who are here with me, they greet you. Please greet all these people. None of that here. Knockout punch. One thought left in your brain. Grace. I can almost hear Paul saying, it's about grace, people. The book began with grace. It was filled with grace. It ends with grace. Grace is the way to God and not law. Grace is Jesus, the one who came to set us free to be what we were created to be. 
He restored us to being the containers of God who have the life of God poured into them so the life of God can pour out of them as the unique expressions of his beautiful life to the world and to each other. Hallelujah. I want to leave you with a story. When I travel around and, and teach the grace of God, this is the story I tell. The story is told that there was once a Hindu wise man traveling through India. He came to a little village, and there in the village, he found a merchant. And the merchant had a dozen quail for sale. He had trained them for a long time to walk in a circle. They had a little metal band around their neck, slaves. They were tied by a string from that metal band to a metal stake. And they would dutifully walk in a circle. All day long. The Hindu wise man looked at them. His heart broke. Filled with compassion. He said, how much for the quail? And the merchant told him the price of one quail. And the wise man said, you don't understand, sir. I want to buy them all. And the merchant was very excited. Took the money. Then the wise man said, cut the strings. And the merchant said, no, 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 no. I can't do that. Do you know how long it took me to get them trained? He said, sir, they're not yours anymore. I bought them. They belong to me. Cut the strings. And you know what they did? They continued to walk in a circle representative of so many Christians in this world who do not understand the new covenant. And so what did the wise man do? He shooed them off and they flew. That's the new believer. (laughs) All they know is Jesus. And so they fly. But what'd they do 100 yards down the road? They hit the road and began walking in a circle again. That's the church. Just give that new believer a little time. He'll be like the rest of us. What would happen if one of those quail caught his identity? I'm a freaking quail. And what if he understood that the law, the strings, had been cut? He says, you know what? I'm going to act like a quail axe and flies off. Now, we would like to think that the other 11 would say, wow, we can fly too. It's not the way legalism works. Oh, you might have one or two fly off, but most of them are going to say, who does he think he is? He needs to get back down here on the ground like the rest of us and walk in a circle of miserable life. Choice is yours. Are you going to hear what the Apostle Paul said? Are you going to believe it? 
Are you going to come out from under the law and trust the Holy Spirit? Oh, but I might fail. Yeah, you probably will. (laughs) We're learning to fly. God's not afraid of your falling. He'll be right there. Pick you up. You took three steps this time, kid. So proud of you. Try for four this time. And when we do that, we will finally, finally be not only experiencing, but expressing a life that is so beautiful, so full of love and mercy that none of us will say, Don't let me fall into the hands of man. No, I found those who have a beautiful life. And then the world, my friends, will want what we have. Amen, Paul said. Prayer room is to your left. If you need to go there for prayer, you got a need, a burden. Maybe it's time to let somebody carry the burden with you. The rest of us, let's go live that beautiful life. Go be the church. Well, that does it for today's episode and for our study of Galatians. We hope you've enjoyed it. We'll be back again next Tuesday to share Pastor Tim's message from this coming Sunday here at Grace Life Fellowship. But don't forget to join us this coming Friday for another edition of Conversations in Grace with Jesse and Pastor Tim. Okay, we'll see you Friday.